Welcome to this podcast of Books Sandwiched In. Our guest for this episode is Elizabeth Rowland, Executive Director of Tennessee China Network, discussing the book Age of Ambition, Changing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China by Evan Osnos. Due to recording difficulties, a portion of Ms. Rowland's remarks has been left out of this podcast. The questions following her talk were not recorded with a microphone, so I have edited out two questions that were completely inaudible, and I left three questions that you can barely hear. However, Ms. Rowland's responses to those questions stand rather well by themselves. You'll hear about three seconds of quiet in those two places where a question would have been. Thank you all for having me here today. I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about Tennessee China Network before I dive into the book, just so you have a a context for why I'm here today. So I was living in China for almost five years and uh, was a policy analyst with the American Chamber of Commerce and a law firm out there. And I decided to move home to be closer to family for a while. And I thought at first I might want to do consulting. So I started traveling across the state to learn about what business was already going on in Tennessee related to China. And what I found was there was a whole lot more business going on here than I expected. The problem was that nobody knew about it. There wasn't any way for the companies to network and share best practices, for service providers to connect with potential clients that want to do business with China. So this fall, I decided to create the Tennessee China Network which is a platform to do just that, to educate and connect people across Tennessee that do business with China. So that's a quick intro to Tennessee China Network. When they first asked me to do a talk on this book, I started reading the first chapter, and I thought, oh, this will be easy. This is, these are issues that people talk about in China every day. And as a policy analyst, it was my job to analyze some of these issues. But the more I started to read the book, the more I realized that I was in trouble, Uh, that the book had a lot of information in it, and it covers basically all of Chinese society in 400 pages. And summarizing this book is pretty much an impossible task in one hour. Actually, we could probably have a discussion of one hour for each chapter of the book. So today I'm just going to try to give a a short summary of some of the main themes, but I'd like to then open it up for discussion because these topics are so big, and I want to see what questions you all have and what insights you might have as well. In the prologue of the book, Evan Osnos writes, this book is an account of the collision of two forces, aspiration and authoritarianism, a battle in which only one can prevail. It's kind of an ominous start to the book. Really, the way I see it is that it's a very ambitious book, attempting to examine the soul of China by looking at and weaving together many stories of people in China. The, and a lot of these are individuals that, that Evan Osnos met through his eight years of reporting on China with The New Yorker. 
This is one of the things he said. In my research, I gravitated most of all to the strivers, the men and women who were trying to elbow their way from one realm to another, not just in economic terms, but in the matters of politics, ideas, and the spirit. And that kind of summarizes the book right there. On the book jacket, it says, Osnos follows the illuminating stories of everyday people and reveals life in the new China. But actually, most of the people that he talks about in the book aren't everyday. There's a lot of pretty remarkable people in the book. Most of them are far from ordinary, despite the fact that most Americans have never heard their names before. Some of the names, uh, Yifu Lin, or Lin Yifu, I guess is the correct way you would say it in Chinese. Lin Yifu. He was a defector from the Taiwan military that actually swam to mainland China from an island off of Taiwan. And uh, he later became one of China's most famous economists. He was the first Chinese chief economist at the World Bank. And in fact, he was the first citizen of a developing country to have such a high level at, at the World Bank. He's profiled a lot all the way throughout the book. Another one, anyone heard of Ai Weiwei? A lot more of you have heard of him. He's one of China's most famous artists. And he's also, over time, become somewhat of a political dissident. And he was imprisoned by the Chinese authorities for a while, or imprisoned and held at, in home arrest for a while. And that, his story is told uh, throughout the book as well, mainly at the end. Hu Shuli. Has anyone heard of Hu Shuli? No? That's another one, super famous in China, that no one in the U.S. has ever heard of. She is one of China's most famous pioneering journalists. And she started the, the, journal, uh, the magazine, uh, Tai Jing. And she, it's probably China's first real investigative journalism since the uh, reform and opening. Another one, Han Han. I'm not sure what the tones are. Who's heard of Han Han? Our Chinese friends here. <laughs> he's, he's probably the most famous blogger in China and has promoted for some reforms as well. But he also has a side job of being a race car driver, which I didn't realize. Uh, a couple others. Tang Jie is one of China's most famous nationalists. He started out as a student in Shanghai during the Olympics. I don't know if you all remember there was a controversy around the Olympics and Tibet, and when the torch was going around the world, there were some protests. Tang Jie ended up making a video saying why um, that was wrong to protest the torch and calling for Chinese people to stand up for China. And he, that launched his writing and blogging career. And then one other one, Gong Hainan, someone that no one else has ever heard of in the U.S. either. She started one of China's first dating websites. The list goes on. This book talks about so many different people in such intricate detail uh, and their impact on Chinese society. It's, it's very interesting, um, but impossible to summarize up here in a short period of time. In order to try and, in an effort to do that, I'm going to talk about some of the themes throughout the book. The book is divided into three sections. Fortune, 
which is the first section that examines China's quest for prosperity, both at the national as well as the individual level. Then the second section is truth, which examines the competing narratives seeking to define China and shape China's future. And faith, which examines China's search for something to believe in in this time of drastic change. So I'll start with the section on fortune. As many of you probably know, China began the reform and opening process in, in 1979. Prior to that, the country was ruled by Mao Zedong, and it was very much not open. And in 1979, Deng Xiaoping and his administration began some major changes in the economy to move slowly China towards a more open system. A quote from uh, Evan Osmus's book, this transformation during, starting in the 1980s, it was a transformation 100 times the scale and 10 times the speed of the first industrial revolution, which created modern Britain. Another interesting statistic from the book, in 1949, the average life expectancy was 36 36 years old, I would be dead next year. <laughs> and the literacy rate was 20%. By 2012, after 30 plus years of reform and opening, life expectancy was 75, and the literacy rate was above 90%. It's incredible. <laughs> and another way to describe this evolution is if you look at marriage and what people expect when they get married. In the 1980s, women expected three things. They called it the three rounds and a sound. One is a bicycle. The three rounds were bicycle, wristwatch, and sewing machine. And then the sound was a radio. These were the things, if you had these, you could, you could find a wife <laughs> pretty easily. Another, another way that they said it was also 30 legs, another alternative. You could have 30 legs, a bed, a table, and a set of chairs. So pretty low expectations in the 80s, soon after reform and opening started. Today, however, it's a car, a house, and a nest egg, what the women expect the men to have. If you don't have a car and a house, you might have a little trouble finding a wife. In singles ads, they call it or car and home equipped. And if you don't have these, you're, you're called um, one of the three withouts. And these, are, these issues are things people talk about in China all the time. So when I was reading it, I was just like nodding my head, yeah, yeah, this, <laughs> this is true. Uh, during the economic reform process, the Chinese administration made what some people call the great bargain. And that bargain was that they would allow people to have greater economic freedom and economic activities in exchange for less freedom in their political life. So basically, we'll start having open markets. You can buy and sell things freely, which under communist rule under Mao, there were no markets. There was no private enterprise. So they said, well, we'll open up for private enterprise, but we're still not going to have a multi-party system. The other thing that Deng Xiaoping, the leader at that time, said was that some will get rich first. 
they'll allow certain people to um, make money and then others will later follow. Development is the only hard truth. These are some of the catchphrases of the time. They also called these people that got rich first, they, they often called them, they built a barehanded fortune. From nothing, they struggled their way up to be CEOs. The book talks about one CEO that was actually illiterate and ended up, through her connections and her political savvy, uh, becoming, I, I think it was a billionaire. <laughs> I'm going to read a quote now. The race to catch up inspired creativity, but occasionally with disastrous results. And we've all heard about scandals and poisoning with the um, milk powder and the toothpaste and things like that. I just wanted to read one of the examples of this from the book. Wang Guiping, a tailor in the Yangtze River Delta, joined his neighbors in the new business of chemical production. Telling another villager that it would put my son in a good school and make us city people. At night, while his family slept, the tailor, who had a ninth grade education, experimented with the help of a chemistry book and found that he could disguise a solvent as a more expensive variety and save the difference in cost. Before selling it, I drank some, he recalled later. It burned my stomach a bit, but nothing too strong. He found other cheap substitutes for chemical components, and his profits rose. But his concoctions turned out to be poison, and when they ended up in cough syrup in 2006, they killed 14 people at a hospital in Guangdong, and the tailor went to jail. China closed down more than 400 small-time medicine makers that year. In all, their tainted products had killed hundreds of people, some as far away as Panama. So that's an example of how the rapid evolution and reform in China also, in addition to leading to rapid increase in per capita income and comfort for a lot of people, 300 or 400 million people were brought out of poverty during that time, it also led to a lot of environmental problems, a lot of corruption, and a lot of very unsavory business practices. Another interesting statistic, by 2007, nearly half of all Chinese provinces had sent their chief of transportation to jail for corruption. Min Xinpei calculated corruption cost China 3% of GDP. So that's a short summary of the first section of the book. And it's all packed full of great examples, and I really encourage you to read it. The second section, Truth, which I said examines the competing narratives seeking to define China and shape China's future. I drew out of this section, and really it, it blends into the other sections as well, several narratives that are in this search for truth in China. One narrative comes from the Central Publicity and Propaganda, Central Publicity Department, or which is really the Propaganda Department, but that's how they translate it, the Central Publicity, publicity Department. In, in the book, he mentions that some call it the Department of Truth, in homage to Orwell. The Communist Party's top concern in China is internal stability. No matter what, besides development, 
they want to make sure that the country is stable. And they control information and censor and filter their propaganda with that in mind. One estimate says that there's one propaganda officer for every 100 Chinese citizens. And there's 1.4 billion people in China. So that's a lot of propaganda officers. They have an ever-evolving list of censored words and phrases in China that you cannot say. If you write them on the internet, they'll take them down. And I, I just wanted to read you a little bit um, from the book about this. Journalists were still expected to sing as one voice, and the department would help them do so by issuing a vast and evolving list of words that must and must not appear in the news. Some rules never changed. Any mention of Taiwan's laws was to refer to them as so-called laws, while China's political system was unique that reporters were never to type the phrase, quote, according to international practice when drawing comparisons to Beijing. When it came to the economy, they were not to dwell on bad news during the holidays or on issues that the government classified as unsolvable, such as the fragility of Chinese banks or political influence of the wealthy. The most ardently forbidden subject was Tiananmen itself. No mention of the 1989 protests or the bloodshed appear in Chinese textbooks. When the government discusses the events of that year, it describes them as chaos or turmoil organized by a handful of black hands. Some examples of typical propaganda speak in China. I wanted to read one other little quote. The department, referring to the propaganda department, wasn't reading stories before publication. On the contrary, it was up to editors themselves to guess how far they could go and compute the risk of wandering past an ill-defined limit. That was a specific kind of pressure, which China scholar Perry Link once compared to living beneath an anaconda coiled in an overhead chandelier. Normally, the great snake doesn't move, he wrote. It doesn't have to. It feels no need to be clear about its prohibitions. Its silent, constant message is, you decide for yourself. After which, more than not, everyone in its shadows makes his or her large and small adjustments, all quite naturally. The nationalists are the people in China that are trying to defend China's name. Here's a quote from the book in Evan Osnos's voice. I was struck that 19 years after the demonstrations at Tiananmen Square, China's young elite had risen again, not in the pursuit of liberal democracy, but in defense of China's name. So some of the people that he mentions in this category, the main one is Tang Jie. Again, I don't know what the tone is for the name. Tang Jie, what I mentioned before, was a student in Shanghai who published that video about uh, China's stand-up. He thinks that Western media only portrays the negative about China, and he wants to correct the record. That's what that video's purpose was. They believe the world profited from China, but blocked its attempts to invest abroad. That's another quote um, discussing the nationalists. 
quote, we accept all the values of human rights, of democracy. The issue is how to realize it. Another student that was friends with Tang Jie said, they fought for China, referring to the Tiananmen Square incident in 1989. They fought for China to make the country better, and there were some faults of the government. But finally, we must admit that the Chinese government had to use any way it could to put down that event. Do you live on democracy? You eat bread, you drink coffee. All these are not brought by democracy. Indian guys have democracy and some African countries have democracy, but they can't feed their own people. If democracy can really give you the good life, that's good. But without democracy, if we can still have the good life, why should we choose democracy? I thought that was a really good summary of the Chinese perspective uh, from the, the nationalist narrative. And a lot of times I think Americans don't hear that perspective and that was drawn out in this book pretty well. Though not by as diverse enough of voices as I would hope. He only had a couple in there. He said, another thing interesting, food for thought, because we are in such a system, we are always asking ourselves whether we are brainwashed, he said. We are always eager to get information from different channels. But when you are in a so-called free system, you never think about whether you are brainwashed. He had asked Evan Osnos in the book as well what he thought the core values of America were. And I think Evan Osnos said liberty. And Tang Jie was just amazed. He thought, wow, you guys have really drunk the Kool-Aid over there. You all agree liberty is the, is the main value. I thought that was pretty interesting. Another... Uh, I don't know if nationalist is the right word for Lini Ifu, the, the World Bank economist. He also defends China's um, place in the world. And he, here's another quote. He argued for the virtues of being free, not from repression, but from the fear of poverty and hunger, of which I hold vivid childhood memories. So basically... China supports economic rights more than they do human rights. Lin Fu, so he promotes economic opening, but not political opening right now, and believes that if you have too quick of a political transition, that can lead to chaos like it did with the Soviet Union. He says, the more radical the reform, the more violent will be the destructive social conflicts and opposition to reform. He also believes in industrial policy, which is where the government sort of picks winners and losers in the uh, market economy, picks companies that they want to foster to grow, picks industries that they want China to excel in, and uh, help create big companies that can be influential globally. So what the, the Chinese nationalists call the economic miracle of the past 30 years, that reform and opening, the liberals, and specifically in this quote, Liu Xiaobo, um, uh, one of the a liberal dissident in China, calls it calls the China economic miracle rather the miracle of a systemic corruption, the miracle of an unjust society, the miracle of moral decline, and the miracle of a squandered future. 
But then at the same time, according to a Pew Research Center poll, almost 9 out of 10 Chinese approved of the way things were going in their country. The highest share of any of the 24 countries surveyed one spring by the Pew Research Center. These differences in this struggle for the national narrative is a key part of the third section of the book as well, faith. The faith section is examining China's search for something to believe in during this time of dramatic change. So one part of it is what to believe in politically, and I just talked a lot about that. But a lot of it is more deep. It's about China's soul, really. Here's a quote. Mao's cultural revolution destroyed China's old belief systems. But Deng's, Deng Xiaoping, uh, Deng's economic revolution could not rebuild them. The relentless pursuit of fortune had relieved the deprivation of China's past, but it had failed to define the ultimate purpose of the nation and the individual. There was a hole in Chinese life that people named the Jingshen Kongshu, or spiritual void, and something was going to fill it. So what was that something going to be? Since the reform and opening, different uh, religions and philosophies have resurged back. Under Mao, religion was basically banned, as was anything considered ancient. So even Confucianism was considered backward and banned. But since the reform and opening, there's been a rise of Christianity. 60 to 80 million Christians are now in China, and that population is growing. That's more Christians than members of the Communist Party. There's also been uh, the movement of the Falun Gong, which China pronounces as uh, a cult. And there's also, as I mentioned, the revival of Confucius, not only among people, but also within the government. The government is actually promoting Confucius and Chinese culture all over the world through what they call Confucius Institutes. And there's actually one here at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, a Confucius Institute at the International House, and they give, uh, here's a little advertisement, (laughs) they give Chinese classes and have cultural events and things like that. They have some pretty interesting events, and I take their Chinese class. (laughs) So in addition to religion and those political values, there's also a struggle within China going on about the moral compass. People feel like before, under the communal system, people were bound together. China's society is a a very family-oriented society. But as the economy has grown... People have moved all over the country with more freedom of movement. People aren't as tied to their families anymore. There's migrants that are in strange places, maybe don't even speak the the local language. So there was an example that he talks about in depth in the book of a little three-year-old girl, little Yue Yue, who was wandering in the street and got hit by a truck. And apparently the truck didn't see her and kept going. Nobody on the street stopped to help her because they were worried that if they helped her, they might get in trouble somehow. Another car came by and hit her again. She laid on the street for five minutes before anyone came up to help her. It was all on video because it was right outside of a store that had the surveillance cameras. So this was 
a national crisis, basically, across the country. People freaked out <laughs> and thought, what, what kind of country are we becoming? This is awful. And there's actually a, a hesitation to help sometimes because there had been some high-profile situations where people were good Samaritans, helped somebody that was hurt, and later got sued in court and lost because the person that was injured said that they made it worse or that it was their fault. And so that's why people didn't want to help. So there's this massive crisis of, of morality that people are talking about all the time in China. And then finally, going back to the national narratives, some people even see nationalism as a sort of religion in China as, as people are starting to examine meaning in their lives. So that's my basic overview of the book. I had a few other comments that I could make, but I wanted to see what questions you all have first, and um, maybe we can start a little dialogue. He mentions in the book that there's a rise in nationalism among the young people in China right now to take back the pride that China lost during what they call the century of humiliation from the opium wars and through the first part of the 20th century. And there's also, however, a lot of young people who don't buy in to anything the government says. And they kind of laugh about it. And it's a joke, all of the propaganda. It, so it really varies. I think there's not one theme across the young people in China today. Like in the U.S., millennials in China are all on social media. However, social media in China is not the same as social media in the U.S. Because China has censorship, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter. China has created their own social media platforms, Weibo, Weixin, and some others. They're more controlled, but people do communicate that way. Actually, I think it was 1977 or 78, they started the one-child policy. Each couple could only have one child in order to control the population. And this created an issue where there's this whole generation of, of, of young people now that have grown up with two parents and four grandparents doting on them. And they actually call them little emperors. And they are very, according to the stereotype, self-important, and they're very demanding, more ambitious, and more self-centered than a lot of the prior generations. So that's one stereotype of younger Chinese these days. It's not always true, obviously, like any stereotype, um, but it is common enough that you see people talk about it a lot in China. Yes? Uh, I like to think that what happened in China is they flipped from communism to fascism. Is that a distortion of reality? China under Mao controlled everything. You, you had to get permission to have a baby, to get married. They told you what you were going to do for your job, where you were going to live. It, it was extremely controlled, and they're loosening up the economic side of that while keeping the political side 
firmly in place. Well, it, the political side has actually loosened up some too, but they're introducing what they call a democratic centralism, which the Chinese government likes to say that they support democracy as well. But what they mean is inter-party democracy. So it's not like Xi Jinping, the president, makes all the decisions himself. It's a very broad-based and iterative process, the policymaking process in China. Everyone ends up having to agree to the central consensus that is reached. And they call that part of democratic centralism. It's a way to get broad input without voting. Basically, broad input from the elites without voting. I, I think that people like to throw around the term fascism because it sounds awful, and it is awful. But usually when people throw that term around, I don't think they, they know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's why I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that Obama's a fascist, too. <laughs> yes. Land reform? I don't remember the exact date. I'm not very good with remembering dates. But the uh, land reform happened in an evolving process. That was probably the most fundamental part of the economic reform in the early days. Basically, before people had to grow their land as part of a group commune, and no matter how hard you worked, you didn't get any more or any less. And so there wasn't a lot of incentive to work hard at all. Once they divided up the land into private plots, people could farm their own land, and they had to give a certain amount, a quota of grain or rice or whatever they were producing to the government. But once they reached that quota, they could take what they had extra, feed their family, and sell it on the new open markets. So that enabled new entrepreneurs and that was the start of the whole economic reform process. The, the problem with land reform is that because every family, every person gets a little piece, the pieces are often little. <laughs> so you, you don't have efficiency in growing. As a result, it's really more like subsistence farming. A later part of China's reform process is agricultural reform in the sense of consolidating some of the land and farming it on a more industrial scale. In the past 30 years, a whole lot of migrants have left the farms and gone to the cities to work in factories. And because of that, there's a lot, a lot of villages only have old people and children left in the villages. There's not enough people to even farm the land they have. And so consolidating some of that land and in industrial farming it is one way to increase China's agricultural production. So that's another thing on the reform agenda. The, the reform agenda is extremely, um, you know, we could have a whole other talk about that as well. Sure. My impression, he's pretty objective, but I think that he leans toward the liberal perspective of thinking that China should reform politically faster. He doesn't explicitly say that, but one of my complaints with the book would be that there's not enough voices from the party line and from the nationalist perspective. He highlights two or three, but there's not a lot of really looking at 
things from a Chinese perspective, helping Western... I mean, he, he definitely describes the different outlooks pretty well. But I don't think there's a lot of examples where I read it and thought, wow, that is really a Chinese perspective that is different than what I thought. For, for example, I think a lot of times his, his explanations come across as a foreigner's perspective on China. And he does it much better than a lot of foreigners ever could. So I don't, he's a great journalist, so I don't want to uh, denigrate his good, good book. But especially in one part, he, he took a trip to Europe with a Chinese tourist group. And he was observing all of the different things this tourist group did. And it really reminded me of what a lot of foreigners in China do, where they kind of point out the, the, the weird things that happen in China. And he doesn't say directly that they're weird, but the fact that he's pointing them out in this particular way makes it come across that way. And I didn't really like that that much. So it's, it's a mixed bag. I think it's definitely worth reading. And I have some Chinese friends that liked it. Overall, I'd say he probably leans a little to the liberal side, though. Inequality, a lot of people say, could be a major driver behind the eventual collapse of China if it's not addressed. He's not saying that China is imminently going to collapse or anything like that. But the inequality is enormous. It's one of the most unequal countries in the world. I don't have the number in front of me right now. In the rankings, it's something like, if, if one were the most equal... China's down in the hundreds for equality and Gini coefficient. 400 million people in China have come out of poverty. So overall, the people of China are much better off than they were before. However, a lot of times it's not if you're better off, it's how well are you off compared to your neighbors. And people get mad if they're living in a one-bedroom apartment next to a big skyscraper that just, their neighbors just got plowed down to build a big skyscraper that's filled with luxury apartments for billionaires. So that's one difficulty that China's facing right now. Well, I think that's about all of our time and appreciate you all coming. Thank you all for being Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.